Hello and welcome to episode 72 of Feckin' Metal. I'm your host, Fergal Trainer. This episode marks the end of a short series that I've been doing over the last few weeks on the Irish rock and metal scene and the people involved in it. We started with the rock star, we moved on to the fan, then we moved on to the band member, and now we speak to one of the promoters in Ireland of rock and metal gigs since 1999. That is Fergal Holmes, also known as H, or H if you're from the United Kingdom, or America, or Ron. As stated, Fergal has been promoting gigs since 1999. We're coming up on 24 years of this company being in existence. It's currently known as DME Promotions, has traded as different names in the past, but DME is the promoter of the second tier level venues in Ireland, I would say, so not the highest capacity venues like the Tree Arena, but just a tier down from that. So you're talking about Vicar Street, you're talking about the Academy, the Olympia, to name a few in Dublin, and many others across the country as well. I've wanted to speak to Fergal for a while, not just because we have the same name, but because if you're like me, you're interested not only in the music, that's first and foremost, but you're also interested in the behind the scenes nature of how gigs are put together, festivals are put together, the people who exist behind what we hear and what we see and what we pay our money to go to. That's why I've spoken to festival promoters in the past. That's why I like speaking to writers. That's why I like speaking to people involved who are not necessarily the musicians themselves. And this is another case of that, where you get a peek behind the scenes of what happens and how a gig gets turned from an idea into an actual live performance by that band. Fergal has worked his way up from almost nothing to friends just putting on gigs for the sake of it. And he's turned that into a successful and profit-generating business over the years. So over the course of time, he had to adapt his model from just booking bands that he wanted to see to booking bands who he knew was going to generate a profit and help him to build a successful business. And you can get to hear that story from the very beginning to the present day. So with all that said, this is my interview with Fergal Holmes, H of DME Promotions. I hope you enjoy it. Yeah, I've just started the recording there. I suppose this is your livelihood, isn't it? Being on time and uh, having things organized. Pretty much, yeah. It's what it mainly boils down to, yeah. All right. Well, we've never met in person before, um, but we have chatted a bit on Facebook Messenger. I know everybody calls you H, which you have as your name there, but your name's obviously Fergal, as is my name. Yeah. How long have you had that nickname, H? Oh, God. goes back, I would say, around guts of 25 years, it must be. Really? Yeah, and most people think it's just to do with my surname being Holmes, but actually it was because back then I started going bald really young. Okay. You know, everyone that was hanging out, everyone had long hair. And so they christened me hardcore because, you know, the shaved head look was the hardcore look. (laughs) Uh, Then it gradually became HC and then H. and Okay, fair enough. Yeah, it stuck. Do you introduce yourself to people as H or as Fergal? It depends who it is, really. All right, okay. can be awkward at times, though, because, you know, sometimes even, say, going into a venue and, say, you know, picking up a pass or something like that. Yeah. 50-50, which it's been put under, you know. (laughs) I was going to ask you how being called Fergal has treated you throughout your life, because to me it's been a bit of a pain in the bollocks. Um, Most people mishear it or don't know how to spell it or can't pronounce it, especially people who aren't. Yeah, not too bad. Mine is spelt a bit simpler than yours, I guess. You have two extra letters compared to me, don't you? Yeah, well, it's the Irish spelling. I don't, my parents just went a bit wild. Mm, but I, my biggest pet peeve with it is getting called Fergus. Oh, yeah. Oh, there's nothing worse. Right off, you know? <laughs> not that there's nothing wrong with that name. It's just, it's not my goddamn name, you know? There's, like, there's one guy in my gym, like, and... <laughs> He just, it's too late to correct him now. I let it go a couple of times, you know. It's like, oh no, I can't, tur- I can't turn around now at this stage. And it's a bit of a running joke with the other lads in the gym because they know it pisses me off. So they just crack up every time this particular guy comes in and says, All right, Fergus. <laughs> I, I know what you mean about letting things go too far. Weirdly enough, uh, over the course of my life, more than one person, actually, three different people have for, uh, mistakenly thought my name was Trevor. Um, yeah. I don't know where it comes from. I think it's Fergal Trainer or something. And they right, just yeah. mix, mix the two sounds up in their head. And there was a guy who worked in the canteen in my old job. And um, 
very flamboyant kind of chap and he'd be like oh hello mr trevor yeah and everybody it went on for ages and i, I didn't have the heart to correct him i corrected him once or twice yeah. and it just kept going on and on and everybody around me was like why is he calling you trevor i was like shut up <laughs> yeah i generally won't be too harsh because i'm disastrous at remembering people's names at all to be honest with you so all right uh, yeah if, if, they're, if they're getting close it's probably better than i do anyway so yeah. <laughs> all right um, so we weren't here to talk about names, of no. course, but um, uh, I wanted to talk to you, obviously, about what your your job is. You're the owner, founder of DME Promotions mm. um, since 1999. I know back since I've been going to gigs under that banner, it used to be called Double Metal Events, yeah. then you shortened it to, D- to DME. But before that, did I have a life before Double Metal Events, or is that what it was always called since you found no, it? No, it started in 99 as Emerald Promotions, Okay, um, which were started by... It was actually started by two other guys, um, Paul Kearns, who you probably know, mm. and another guy, Adrian Butler, who was the bass player in Morning Beloved. Oh, yeah. <laughs> For many years, they actually started it. Um, and then I think it was like the second show or something. I came in getting involved. And, and then it just, after the first few years, uh, pretty early, and I can't remember the exact years, but Ado drifted away, and I think he moved away anyway. And then, Paul moved away as well. Um, so that's like you're talking the early 2000s with all of that anyway. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, kind of at that point, then it became Dublin Metal Events just because up to that point, it had never even been a registered company. You know, it was only a, you know, yeah. just a, a few lads putting a few shows on kind of thing. Um, and then I just the Dublin Metal Events name was a little bit too specific. Um, first of all, because I was, you know, branching out a little bit. Every, not everything was strictly metal. Mm. Or even if it was, the name was just a bit limiting when you were mailing agents, you know, if you were trying to do it a little bit different. Yeah. Um, yeah. The Dublin part even just became a bit limiting too, because, uh, you know, I've been doing stuff in Belfast and that for years as well. So... Yeah, I just rebranded it and kind of re-registered a new company as DME. Just it was still identifiable, but yeah, just not as uh, not as limiting, you know, because a lot agents and whatever else wouldn't actually know what the DME stood for, you know. Okay, so you you said you got involved early with the other two lads, um, and how did this come about? Like, were you were friends with these lads? I assume, and then you started assisting them promoting their gigs or how did that happen or fall into place yeah i mean they just started just you know fans and they were friends with i think it was like cathedral and anathema maybe were the first couple of shows okay and yeah i hung out with them all the time so i was just kind of helping out on the days and stuff anyway you know just lumping in lugging gear or whatever mm. and they kind of said to me look do you want to just come in to it properly not that there wasn't really anything to come into properly at the time you know yeah it wasn't like it is now by any mm. means so but it was just you know uh that's what happened anyway so yeah I, for for what it was worth i officially became part of it and um was there any money in it back in those days or were you just doing it for the love of doing gigs no it was just fans just trying to get some bands over because nobody was playing here you know mm. everybody had jobs and that it wasn't really about the money at all as long as if the shows covered themselves that was a result you know and um back in those early days were you giving any money up front to bands or was it more of a collect money on the door type of situation or how did that work no i mean there was guarantees agreed with them so there was an element of risk to it yeah um, and I mean, I can't remember exactly, but there was probably 50% payment up front, you know, because it's just a trust issue apart from anything else with new promoters or anything, you know, but just it's just the way it's generally done anyway. So, no, I mean, it was it wasn't about the money and it was fans doing it for the love of but love of it but there was still still an element of risk because you were guaranteeing the bands and, you know, and I mean, very early in it, might have only been the third show or something was Morbid Angel. Mm. So it kind of just quickly took a jump. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that was a level up kind of because, I mean, back then, I mean, I think it was Cathedral and Anathema were the shows before and they were guys that 
Paul and Ada were kind of almost personal friends with. So it was, yeah, yeah, you know, more, more relaxed, but Morbid Angel was obviously a jump up. So, um, yeah, no, there was, the, there was the same risk in principle. So like you had, you been a metalhead from an early age, what age would you have been when you started getting involved with this? Yeah, <laughs> probably. I think Guns N' Roses and Metallica when I was around 13 or so, 13, mm. 14. Yeah. And that was the beginning of the, the road to ruin. <laughs> My parents swore it would only be a phase, but... Uh, Don't they all? Yeah. I think it's been accepted at this stage that it's probably not, you know? <laughs> mm. Yeah, well, I mean, or else you're playing a very long con here for yeah. the last few decades. 100%, yeah. <laughs> After the first few gigs, then, does that open doors to get more contacts or... How does it continue on then after Morbid Angel? But you said yourself was a bit of a step up from... Uh, yeah, I mean, it's just, you know, yourself. It's just you, you get a reputation, at least, that you are trustworthy. And, I mean, look, if I think back to how some things were done on some of those shows, obviously, it's a million miles away from how it would be now. Mm. But it worked. Yeah. You know, the band's got everything they needed the shows went ahead fine so from that point of view yeah it's just about you know you just build up um a little bit of a reputation and if you get a couple of name shows under your belt you can approach different agents and at least you have some sort of resume so to speak you know yeah yeah it's just really everybody needs a starting point and once you get that and you can, yeah, like I said, at least you have something to back you up and show where well, we did this and you can check with the agent for that band. It was all okay and the fee was paid and whatever else, you know. Yeah. What, what venues would you have been putting on these early gigs in back then? Or what, what time period is this? Some like early 2000s are we now or it's still late 90s? Well, the Morbid show was 99. I was on the, so that came around pretty quickly. That was on the uh, Formulas Fatal to the Flesh tour. That was in... Temple Bar Music Center, what's now Button Factory. Yeah, yeah. Anything previous to that, I think they were all Eamon Dorans. Okay, right. Um, and and then, uh, yeah, so Temple Bar Music Center was as big as it got back then, really. Then along the way, was there any particular milestones that increased the scope? I mean, you mentioned that the, at the start, it was a few lads putting on a few gigs. At some point, it became an actual registered company. What had to happen in the period in between those early gigs and I don't know, maybe to the point where it became an actual company to get it to that stage. Sorry. I don't know if you can hear that. My dog is snoring. But sorry, I can, can hear you your it. dog. Yeah. You want me to move him away or oh, it's, it's fine. It's grand. Uh, yeah. I, well, I think, I mean, just the whole thing of making a proper company and stuff was just, you kind of have to do that. If you start doing fairly regular shows at a certain level, because hmm. You know, you need to get VAT registered and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I, mean, I can't remember. There was nothing specific that made that happen. It was just, it's just a necessity if you're, and plus, if you just want to look professional and try and progress, because you have to give like, you know, company info for contracts and VAT numbers and all that kind of stuff. So, mm. um, I can't, there was no like specific thing that was like, okay, I need to actually turn this into something proper. It was just like a natural progression, really. Um, okay. that's kind of been the way the whole time it's just been a natural progression there's no one show I could ever point to that was like oh you know yeah. there's the odd one sticks out but generally it was just like um, natural progression you know um, I think if, if you're asking about any specific shows that felt like milestones I mean it's funny to think back but I remember it was obituary and Samuel in Temple Bar Music Center. Mm. Now, I think it was sometime in the 2000s, you'd have to look it up. Maybe you can put it up on the screen or something, what year it was. But I remember freaking out because that was the first show that did over 500 tickets. Right. Which at the time just felt like a, a real milestone, you know. And are you in Ticketmaster at this stage or another ticketing company? I think at that stage it was just tickets.ie. Okay. Hadn't gone the Ticketmaster route at that point. Yeah. Um, um and what, what like what is your role at a, at a gig like that then? Obviously, that was the, the, the most attended one you'd done. Like, what are you doing at the time um while the show is on? 
do you have duties while the actual gig is taking place to make sure everything goes okay? Well, I mean, during the show, really, there's not a huge amount because, you know, once doors open, I mean, you know, the venue security and the venue crew and the band's crew and all that kind of stuff really take over. Mm. And, you know, you have your own crew to help them for getting gear off during changeovers or whatever. Although yeah. probably back then I was probably mucking in doing that. Um, and uh, no doubt stressing, checking how many people had paid on the door to see if I'd covered the show. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then, you know, probably just things like uh, sorting out what food they want for after the show or something like that, you know. But the majority of the work mm. is in advance, really. Um, you can, you okay, can so give it- yourself a, a relatively easy day on the show if you actually do everything properly in advance, which has always kind of been my motto. Fair enough. I can see obituary played the Temple Bar Music Centre in January 2006. Is that the gig yeah, you're referring to there? Yeah. Okay. By this stage, are you the sole owner, proprietor of Dublin Metal Events? Yeah, by then, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And is it your full-time job then in early 2006? No, no. I oh. was working in uh, I was working in IT for Viva Insurance. I think it's about, I think it was 2012 until then I was doing that still. So, I mean... I was still doing that when I was at the point of like a night wish, which sold out Vicker street in like mm. whatever year that was, which was obviously a milestone, you know, 1500 sellout was obviously the biggest thing, but yeah, I was still, still doing the full-time job at that point. Okay. You know, it worked okay. Cause they were pretty flexible with days off and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I assume most of your evenings though were taken up like with all of the admin involved. Yeah, they were. And uh, I mean, in all honesty, a lot of my days in Aviva were taken up with it too, <laughs> which is probably why they offered me redundancy around 2012. <laughs> right. I think it was a, a, a mutually beneficial uh, arrangement part ways. Yeah, it was because uh, okay. yeah, it was it was growing. It was taking more and more of my time. And in all honesty, yeah, I was uh, I was slacking big time on what I was supposed to be doing when I was in there. You know. Yeah, yeah. stupid like they knew mm. i had this thing going on outside and you know yeah. not idiots so, uh, but it was perfect because it was a big step to lose that and go into this full time because you know it was a pretty good paying you know it nice respectable job mm. so and i already had a mortgage and stuff at that point so to take that plunge um and you know, not and depend solely on doing metal shows for a living. Um, mm. so redundancy made that less risky because it gave me a safety net. I couldn't have just done it as in just quit, yeah, without that redundancy thing made it easier to take the risk. You know, it gave me a safety net. Okay, so you have a like a lump sum or something. I'm, I'm assuming, yeah. were you sustained then though when that ran out? I know you've put on a gig like Nightwish. Um, did things continue in that vein or continue to get better after that? Yeah, point? I mean, you know, I did. I mean, I've always been pretty sensible with money. So um, I didn't, you know, I didn't really use the redundancy that much. I managed that things went pretty well where I wasn't having to use that too much. Um, yeah, I was able to pretty much make it work, you know. I was getting more and more shows booked at that point. And uh, yeah, it, it's, it, it pretty much worked out fairly seamlessly, really. Okay, so thinking of a band like Nightwish, you said they sold out Vicker Street, which is a 1,500 uh, capacity venue. Mm-hmm. How does it get from the idea of you wanting to book Nightwish to the gig actually taking place? Um, what, what's the first contact like and what has to happen? Well, I mean, by, by that stage, I was well established enough that the shows were offered rather than having to go asking. Okay. I mean, you might still do that sometimes. There might be a band I really wanted to get, and I'd approach the agent. Sure, I still do that to this day. You know, you come up with an idea. Yeah, you don't just sit in your hands waiting for things to fall into your lap. Mm. But Nightwish, as an example, was actually one where their agent was a guy I worked with quite a bit at the time. So he showed faith in me that I could uh, do that show because it was his mm. biggest band on his roster and he could have easily gone to, you know, one of the big guys and not taken the risk of going with a kind of independent metal promoter. Mm. But uh, um, Why did you think he went with you? Uh, obviously, the other promoters in Ireland 
put gigs on in Vicker Street as well. Why do you think he went with you rather than one of those? Well, most of them will be pretty good in terms of being loyal. Right. So if you build a good reputation and you show, you know, you always look after bands well, you pay your deposits on time, pay the fee balance immediately after the show, everything's properly arranged. It's all about reputation and trust, you know? Yeah. Um, and always will be, really. Um, so, yeah, I mean, if if I'd been doing every other smaller band on his roster, but he could see I was a little bit, you know, iffy on a few things, I'm sure he wouldn't have done it. But I, I worked really hard always to make things perfect for bands and everything properly arranged, even when shows were losing money. Mm. almost especially because that's when you really prove your worth yeah it's easy if you're making money of course yeah harder when you're losing and you still do everything properly you know so yeah it's just really trust and obviously an element of loyalty on his part which you know you hope for from all agents if you're if you're looking after them then um so you're saying obviously you still request bands to come over but by this point people are offering you gigs you built up your reputation But how do you gauge the scene then? Not even just back then, nowadays still. How do you gauge what's going to be popular and what is going to sell in Dublin? What factors into that? I mean, just, I I mean, it helps that I'm a big fan still. So I kind of, even if I wasn't in this business, I'd probably be able to take a good guess at what most bands would be able to do. I don't know. It's just knowledge and just experience. And, you know, there are certain things that are really solid sellers in Dublin. Mm. Um, Different markets are different. You know, Dublin and Belfast, for example, are extremely different at times. Um, Sorry, I'm going to move him away because he... All right, no worries. Go over there. (laughs) Um, What's the dog's name? uh, Arnie. Ernie's a shot now. Yeah. Um, so it's yeah, I mean, I don't know. There's no exact science behind it, and you still get some some things you can be unsure on, and you'll just you know, you'll take a little bit of a gamble and might work out, it might not. Mm. But most things, I get I mean, look, it's just it's not I mean, it's not rocket science, really. You kind of you just no, I, I mean, it's there's I'm, I'm sure most are a lot of people, not everyone. I see some crazy estimates sometimes from people online, or sometimes people yeah. message me about, Can you not get this band over? They definitely do X venue. And I'm thinking, mm. No, they do maybe a hundred people or something. So, mm. yeah, I, I, I guess it's just knowledge and experience. And you know, I keep my uh ear to the ground, so to speak. Mm. Um, other than that, it's, there's no exact science to it, you know. But okay, so you mentioned you're obviously still a big fan. So, like, yeah, how much of that plays into the bands you book? Do you book bands that you know people will like, or do you like certain bands and promote them? Um, not so much anymore. I I did more of that in the probably earlier years, where I would do it a little bit more with my heart than my head. Yeah, and I had a few expensive lessons. taught me to stop doing that because if I really wanted to see the band that badly I could have gone over to London for a couple of nights away had a few beers, enjoyed the show and spent a lot less money including hotels and everything than I lost on the show you know so I kind of learned uh, to stop doing that but you know sometimes there's still a little bit of heart in it and there's nothing wrong with that it's just you know but yeah look it's definitely a more serious business now. So it's definitely more head than heart at this point. Do you um, ever find yourself booking any artists and I don't expect you to name them, but someone that you strongly dislike because you know that they're going to sell tickets. Yeah. I, I, I can't think if I've ever booked any band that I strongly dislike, but I've booked plenty. I have absolutely no interest in on a personal level. Right. Okay. Um, because I know they'll sell, but yeah, I mean, look, it's business um... at the end of the day. And then, like, so you mentioned you're a fan and you can kind of read the room with certain things, but if you've no interest in the artist and you know they'll sell, what feeds into that calculation? Like, is it, do you look at social media? Do you look at streaming numbers or is it just... I mean, some bands are just obviously popular, you know? Yeah. Um, But yeah, I mean, you know, 
I don't know. I guess I just have an awareness of how popular most bands are um, in the rock metal spectrum. Um, mm. Whether I necessarily really like them or not. Um, sometimes I'll just have a look on social media numbers and all that kind of stuff. Um, but, you know, also you'll just check maybe if it's something I'm really not familiar with, you know, you can obviously, well, first of all, you can ask the agent for some numbers from UK or European mm. shows or something to get a gauge. Yeah. Um, or, you know, maybe, you know, some promoters, you can ask them if they've done them before, mm. even just Google previous tours, Yeah. you know, check the last tour they did and look at the venues and you can check the capacities of the venues and stuff like that. You know, it's just a, mm. Yeah, it's all, probably all the things you imagine you'd do, really. Yeah, okay. All right. Um, you mentioned on the DME Facebook page that it's a place for people to discuss metal bands, gigs that they're going to, and also to request artists that they'd like to see. How much does that play into who you book? Not very much at all, to be honest. Okay. I mean, people are free to send messages, please get this band and stuff. But, I mean, in all honesty if it was a really popular band, that would be a really good book and that someone's requesting, then I'm sure I've already thought of it, you know? Yeah. It's, it's unlikely someone's going to message some band that's I'm thinking, shit. Yeah, they're right. They're worth a thousand tickets. How did I never look into them? You know, <laughs> it's just uh, not to be a dick, you know, but it's yeah. just unlikely because I'm just so into it myself, you know? So, yeah. um, People are free to shoot those messages, but just don't expect a reply. <laughs> I know people were uh, trolling you with ghost requests several years ago before they supported oh, yeah. Metallica and Slane. You had yeah. to put up something. You're like, I'm not getting ghosts. So uh, yeah, stop yeah, asking. Troll at the time, yeah. Every <laughs> every announcement was just like every comment. Then no matter what the band that was announced was, every comment <laughs> on it was a ghost. I would have loved to. I know. Um, okay, I think uh, I didn't want to, you know. Yeah, yeah, they're locked. They're locked in elsewhere. Uh, yeah. So I know you did um, your first gig at the Olympia a while back. Um, well, recently enough, and from from your Facebook posts, I assume that was a, a large milestone for you. Yeah, Meshuggah was the first one last year, and then followed up with the Behemoth Arch Enemy thing. Mm. Yeah, it was cool. You know, it's an iconic venue, so it was good to finally get in there. You know, two sold out shows always helps. You know. And was there were there barriers in place of getting you in there beforehand? Obviously, you've been promoting gigs for a long time. No, not really. I mean, it was just I was just in the habit of always going to Vicker Street when it came to something around that type of capacity. Olympia is a bit bigger, but uh, mm. yeah, it was just uh, I just always ended up going to Vicker Street, and then I guess I was used to Vicker Street, so it was just it's easier to go what you're used to, you know. Sure. But, um it came to the point then where needed to progress a bit on capacity and also Olympia stage is a lot bigger. Right. Okay. Uh, which you, uh, you need, especially for something like that behemoth arch enemy carcass thing, you know, and you have so much equipment. Hmm. Um, so yeah, no, there was no, no specific barrier. It certainly wasn't like that. The venue were like, no, you can't book this venue or anything like that. I've always yeah. had a great relationship with them. Hmm. Um, so yeah, it was just, Probably just comfort zone, you know. Yeah. What's the difference capacity wise between Vicker Street and the Olympia? It's not that huge, about 150 tickets. Okay. All right. But if you're selling for 40 odd quid, I suppose that's a sizable chunk. Yeah. I mean, it adds up, you know, every ticket counts. But uh, the, the biggest advantage is the uh, the production capability just because of the stage. Yeah. Depth, especially. It's like twice as deep as the Vicker Street stage. And are you getting stage um, specifications as part of the, your negotiation with the artist or the representative as in what size they're going to need? And does that factor in then? Yeah. I mean, within reason, you know, it, it's usually pretty obvious what a band is going to need roughly. Um, but, you know, the venues have the stage that they have mm. generally. Yeah. So, I mean, normally you'll send the venue. On, I mean, it's not such a it's not such a thing on mo, on a lot of the smaller shows. You know, mm. bands once it's a decent stage, they're fine. But yeah, certainly on on Olympia type level shows and stuff, you'll send the venue specs for approval. Okay, 
before anything is confirmed anyway you know obviously stage dimensions will be one of the primary things they're checking mm. okay and uh, you haven't only just promoted gigs in the island of ireland you've done some in manchester and london as well how did yeah how did that work out for you going a bit further afield I, I, for a few years, I did some agency work for a company over in the UK, um, Factory Music. Right. I was working for them as a tour booker for a few years. So that wasn't being the promoter as such, you know, it was the agent booking it out to promoters in the UK. Right. Okay. And then, yeah, that finished up a few years ago. Um, you're probably you're probably thinking about that decapitated tour, for example, um, a few years ago. I just remember some stuff coming up, and I, I seem to remember Manchester or London. Did you do something in the Black Heart, or am I imagining that? No, no, I I was. I think I had I had that Deicide tour announced from Manchester mm. that got cancelled because of COVID. Okay. Um, yeah, it was just kind of like a friend of mine in Glasgow was doing, it and he asked me if I'd kind of co-promote it with him. Um, but most of the stuff I did in the UK was more where I was the agent. Um, even since that arrangement with a factory finished, I still did a bit. Like I, uh, I booked a full UK tour for Decapitated a few years ago. Mm. Um, so like the whole tour was DME presents. And yeah. Okay. Right. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. UK, but DME was kind of the agency as such. I had booked it out then to promoters all over the UK who were kind of buying the shows you know okay um in general your relationships with uh, agents which you've mentioned a few times do you keep that a strictly professional do you befriend these people as well or how does that work yeah i mean obviously i'd like to think some of them are become friendly with like anything i mean if you're working with anyone for uh, years you're gonna there's gonna be a friendly familiar element to it the reason i was asking really was i was wondering does this impede upon negotiations then you know if you if you're on friendly terms with people does it make it more difficult to talk about money um that type of stuff no if anything it makes it easier because you can be more honest with each other and have a discussion about it you know okay um and you know at the end of the day i mean it, it doesn't matter if the agent is friendly with me because the agent has to deliver the fee that's required to the band's management you know so there's not going to be favors getting done or anything like that. You know, everybody's answerable to somebody um, with what they can deliver, you know? So I don't, I don't think it matters in that sense other than, yeah, you know, if you're more familiar with each other, you can, it probably makes the negotiation a little bit easier because you can pick up the phone and you can kind of say, look, I just can't reach what you're looking for there because of X and Y cost. And, you know, you can, yeah probably discuss it a little bit easier so so the agent delivers the fee to the band's management and then you set a ticket price and whatever the difference is between the fee and your costs and the price of the ticket is profit essentially well oftentimes the ticket price will be set by the agent because they'll try and keep it relatively uniform across the tour right okay within reason you know there's some market fluctuations um and say if you're really struggling to get to the fee that they want they may say okay let's just bump the ticket up a couple of euros if that helps to get to it you know that kind of thing Mm. but within reason you can't you don't want one show being 50 euro and somewhere else selling it for 20 you know you can't have that yeah of course yeah um so yeah you generally you know you'll negotiate a guaranteed deal um obviously ticket prices all agreed show budget is projected show budget at least is agreed because things can change mm. you know including things like promotional budgets venue costs catering all these things mm. and there's usually a back-end percentage element on the deals as well then um you know if the show does really well um it's usually like a guaranteed fee versus a percentage of the net cost of, of the net income i get you so, yeah um, so whichever you know, is is the greater you exactly yes yeah. okay so right. like a certain percentage of the of the of the show costs not including the fee yeah if that is greater than the guarantee they get that instead how does something like um i know overkill had to cancel last year there was a gig in dublin and belfast and yeah as of the cancellation of Manorfest, they cancelled yeah how does that affect you are you out of pocket then for that or who loses out most? I think everybody lost out a little bit, but there wasn't a massive amount of money spent, you know? Okay. Um, I mean, 
if I I hadn't at the time, but if I'd paid the bands any deposits or anything like that, they would have refunded those. Right. Um, I think all that was lost was a small little bit of promo spent. Um, not a whole lot, you know. Um, and I think we, we both saw it coming quite a long time before. Right. It was confirmed. We were kind of a little bit dubious about whether Manifest would happen or not. So, so any any thoughts on what happened there, or do you know? No, I don't really have any thoughts on this. I mean, I do, but nothing you want to say here. No, it's not my business, you know. And you're going to go this year again, and I hope it goes well for him. I mean, look, everybody makes mistakes. Mm. Um, so good luck to him. This decent lineup this year. So, I mean, look, I was I was annoyed yeah. last year because I was inadvertently getting screwed by it. But, you know, these things happen. Um, from what I know of him, he's a nice guy. So Fair enough. Um there was another issue there last year, which got a bit of coverage online, which was Zentrix uh, locking their yeah, equipment. <laughs> yeah, I knew that's what you were going to say there when you said another issue. Yeah, it seemed silly at the time, but like um, that's legit what happened by the sounds of it. Yeah, I mean, it was embarrassing. <clears throat> I wasn't there. <laughs> I had something else going on, so I had a couple of the lads just looking after the show, mm. and. Yeah, I mean, whatever it was, early afternoon, one of the lads messaged me and they were like, Zentrix are having an issue. You know, they're parked up at the back of the venue at the time they should have been and everything. Mm. They're having an issue opening the van. Mm. I was like, okay, you don't think anything of it, you know, just that uh, be fine. Yeah. He's like, ah, they're grand. They're going to get it. They're working on it. They said, no worries, you know. Mm. I was like, okay. And it kept going on and on and on. And. I was like, I really should put something up online. But then they were like, no, look, we'll get it. A hundred percent, we'll get it. And I kept getting told that. And then they, they couldn't get a locksmith for love nor money. Mm. Um, the guards stopped and tried to help. Mm. Even some of the local uh, residents in that back lane behind Academy where they yeah. were parked up. Yeah. who I dare say would be fairly adept at working on a lock. <laughs> <laughs> Even they came over trying to help, you know? Yeah. And nobody could get it. I mean, it ended up with an angle grinder with them trying to get into it. Right. And was it a rented van or did they own the yeah. van? It was yeah. a rented van. So they would have to pay costs if they started grinding up the, the doors, I assume. This was the problem. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So then it was like, all right, maybe we can just use the venue backline. Hmm. Just a backline in Grand Social, but it just was not up to scratch. They 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 couldn't have played the show on it. Yeah. So look, people were given out, and I understood it because in hindsight, something should have been announced earlier on that day. But it was one of those things I kept getting told, look, we're definitely going to get it. And once we get it open, if it's only even half an hour before doors, we get the gear in, get the backlines thrown up, it'll be fine. Yeah. So, you know, you keep getting told that, and it's like... Yeah. It's just one of those things. It was a cock up, but mm, yeah, yeah, they'll uh, they'll be making sure the lock is uh, extremely <laughs> oiled up for uh, when they come back in March to do the show. And Very I mean, good. they they did Belfast the next day, no problem, because all it needed was a locksmith. When they yeah. drove up to Belfast the next morning, they stopped somewhere on the way, and the guy had it open in thirty seconds. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was just one of those funny stories, a bit of spiral. Yeah, I mean, yeah, look. Uh, I think most people can laugh about it now. I understood there were some people pissed off because some people mm. already left home. Yeah. When the announcement was put up online. So yeah, it, it should have been handled better, but you know, we're only oh. human. Shit happens. Um, so when I'm looking at the bands that are you have lined up for this year, I noticed a lot of death metal. There's about a, a bit of doom, a bit of mellow death. I'm just looking at the subgenres here. I, I wrote them all down just for my own interest. It seems though like the Irish scene for the last few years has been um, dominated maybe a bit by death metal or extreme metal anyway and it seems for people like me who quite enjoyed the Eternal Champion gig last year there, does, there doesn't seem to be much room for that type of metal, more traditional metal or what people might categorise nowadays as the new wave of traditional heavy metal Yeah, is that not popular in Ireland at the moment? Yeah I mean it's, it's not intentional, it's just you know the Eternal Champion show is well attended mm. um, but 
the thing is, a lot of that stuff is far more popular in a country like Germany and the yeah. surrounding countries. And so when a lot of these bands come to Europe to tour, they might come over to do some of those Keep It True and those type of festivals and then maybe do mm. some shows around that in Europe. But that kind of stuff just doesn't sell near as well in the UK. Mm. And even if it did sell as well here, yeah, we're pretty dependent on the UK, you know, unless the band is just going to fly in, which is what Eternal Champion did. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's just, that's the way it is, you know, it's, uh, it's just about what sells best. I mean, um, and traditionally, as far as, metal goes it's a lot of it that sells best here is like death and thrash and all that kind of stuff you know mm. you know i mean even if you look at something like that left to die show you know that yeah death yeah, yeah i saw that yeah i mean i'm gonna be announcing tomorrow that that's moving into opium next door because Wheelands is sold out already you know people just it's just what works you know mm. um like I, I, it, yeah it's not intentional i'd happily do more shows like that eternal champion but um, it's very hard to make them work financially, you know. What What's interesting to me is um, the band like Wasp. Wasp have come over multiple times, and uh, mm. and they've done well, and they'd be closer to the type of metal I'd be talking about than Left to Die or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I mean, I've done stuff like Blind Guardian and all that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, exactly. Blind Guardian a few years ago, yeah. It seems like the old fans of Wasp never moved on to newer bands, which is, is unfortunate to me because I'd like to see a lot of them over. Yeah, but I mean, you, know, you kind of have that same problem with a lot of the more extreme metal stuff as well, though. I mean, that's why something like that Left Die thing is selling so well because nostalgia is still... So so that was kind of my next question. Is it all the older crowd or the younger crowd coming along to these things as well? A show like that would probably be predominantly older crowd. But, okay, you know, that's not to say there's not newer stuff doing well. I mean, stuff like... The Dying Fetus show, the Revocation, mm. Archspire, they're all selling really well. Yeah. And they'd be a younger kind of crowd, you know? Mm. So, I mean, it's it's not all just old fogies, thankfully, or we'd be in trouble a few years down the line, you know? So, but, but generally, basically, you're saying, though, that it's more extreme metal that sells well, and you have to basically go on that for your booking. Yeah, but it's also just... I mean, a lot of it does come down to what's offered. I mean, sure, I can go trying to get some bands sometimes, but there's a much better chance of getting bands over here if they're doing um, multiple UK shows. Sure, of course, yeah. And the UK market's pretty similar in that it's not really the land of power metal or whatever type of Mm. stuff you're thinking about compared to places like Germany and that, you know. So yeah. it's, it's just very much down to what works in different markets, you know? Mm. Yet, yet there seems to be a market for like Ailstorm, Gloryhammer, that type of stuff. Yeah. That, that's crept in uh, a few times over here. Yeah, I guess they 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 cross a bit because they have some, I guess, fun element and gimmicky element and stuff. So you get a lot of younger crowd as well, you know? Mm. So it's, it's not quite the same as trying to sell... I don't know, Eternal Champion or something to... No, I know, I know, I know, yeah. It's just, it's quite it's quite different to what dominates the maybe list of upcoming gigs that you have for, for 2023. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's just the way it is at the moment. You could look at the list another time, though, and there'd be quite a lot of different stuff, you know? Sure, no, that's fair. This year is a little strange in the sense that so many bands went out touring right after COVID. Yeah. As every band under the sun was like, quite quick, we can make money again. <laughs> yeah. So I think this year is maybe going to see a little bit of a slowdown, mm. um, which is just, I think it's just a bit inevitable, to be honest, between the fact that so many bands did tours last year and since yeah. COVID ended, Um that a lot of bands have now fallen into the same cycle of their done tour and are maybe thinking about new albums now or whatever. And then mm. obviously there's the issue with the cost of touring right now as well. So yeah, um, that's going to play into it a little bit too, you know, it's making some bands a little reluctant. Has that affected you as a promoter? Well, I mean, the costs, yeah. I mean, not the, not the availability of bands necessarily, but the increase in costs. Oh yeah. I mean, everything's gone up. 
Mm. It's not just cost touring. The cost of everything locally has gone up as well, be it venue rental or anything else. Yeah. So, I mean, and then bands are needing more money to make tours financially viable. So, unfortunately, the only answer is ticket prices are going to have to go up a little bit, you know. Mm. Well, everything else has gone up. So, sadly, ticket prices are not immune, you know. You still try and keep them as reasonable as possible. But a show that was 25 may need to be 27.50 now, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure it's not a huge increase, I suppose. So then you mentioned earlier, and I just picked up on it, you weren't there when the Xantrix thing happened. You said if you, you had a couple of the lads looking after that show, which yeah. want, made me want to ask you, do you employ staff then at this point? Do you have uh, staff in DMA promotions? Uh, no, no, nobody full-time, um, right. day-to-day. It's just myself. But obviously there's a good lot of lads who would be uh, in for the show days and that, you know. Yeah, okay. Between, uh, you know, loading crew and catering assistant and maybe someone a runner you know that has a car if anything is needed all those kind of just all those kind of staffing things for show days very good um yeah. is there anything that stands out as a highlight over the past 20 odd years nearly 25 i suppose now uh, since 99 uh on a personal level yeah i'm more on a personal level yeah i mean i i, I usually give the same answer to this when i'm uh, anytime I'm asked it just because well because it's the truth I think getting overkill to Ireland for the first time was a big thing for me yeah um, just because they were one of the first bands I got into as a kid when I saw right. the video for Elimination on Headbangers Ball <laughs> yeah. I still remember it you know and uh, Very good. going out and buying that album Years of Decay on cassette then there's like yeah so they'd never played Ireland um, so yeah. yeah, getting them over, it was special, especially because um, Bobby, especially, is just such a great guy. So mm. uh, yeah, I mean the 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 fanboy in me truly enjoyed that one. Um, Testament as well, like Anthrax. Oh yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, there's a lot on a personal level. To be honest, like if I, you know, if I start thinking or going through the list, like I've been pretty. I mean, yeah, lucky. I mean, I've worked hard for it, but still, I consider myself very lucky. I mean, when I look down through the list, I mean, it's almost, if you told me when I was a kid and my parents looking at my bedroom wall with all the posters, Mm. that I'd have ended up working with probably 90% of those bands on on those walls. Yeah, getting to know them to a certain degree. It's uh, mm. so there's a lot of personal highlights. To be honest, I mean, even though I'm just looking over here where I have some frame posters. You know, it's like Morbid Angel, Obituary, Bolt Thrower, mm. Testament, Fear Factory. Uh, there's too many to mention on a personal level. To be honest, because I genuinely do still love the music as much as I did when I was. 15 you know you managed to get overkill over a couple more times then after it actually as well so um yeah yeah it's, i think it's been three times in total now yeah very good and uh, so you mentioned a good few thrash bands there is is, is thrash your kind of subgenre favorite subgenre of metal yeah it was definitely my uh favorite as a kid mm. and i think if i still had to pick one it's still my favorite yeah i just love thrash and they're generally always my favorite shows too so you don't seem to have lost the love for it, which is great to hear and no, see. No, I haven't. I haven't, which sometimes amazes me. <laughs> <laughs> I think of the shit I've had to deal with sometimes, but no, man, I still love the music as much, if not more, and still buy my vinyl, new releases and everything. Yeah, so yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm really happy that about that, you know? Yeah. I would hate if it had kind of, killed my love for it you know and i'm sure it could easily have and it probably has for others i'd say it probably has for a lot of people in a similar type of position you know where do you stand at the shows when you're when it's actually showtime uh in terms to watch um i'll usually try and wander around to around where the sound desk is or something and going behind that kind of barrier area it's not or, or at the lighting desk or something it's usually a nice spot to watch some from yeah um you know Generally, you don't get to watch the whole show. You know, there's usually things to do. You got to prepare the show settlement or whatever to have it ready to mm. get it done with the manager quickly after the show. Um, but you know, I'd certainly always watch a decent bit of it. You know, um, 
I mean, I just obviously had that high long one last week. That was one I made sure I watched a good bit of. It's that was incredible. Okay. Um, all right. Look, I think that's uh probably gonna cover it off there. That was great chat, and I really appreciate you doing it. So um best of luck with everything you do in the future, onwards and upwards. And thank you very much for speaking to me. Thanks a million, no worries. And I hope the uh snoring pug doesn't disturb the audio too much. <laughs> All right, so that was Fergal H. Holmes from DME Promotions and his dog, Arnie, by the way. The dog does have a name uh, who you could hear growling in the background there from time to time. To me, that was a thoroughly interesting chat where I got to ask a lot of questions that I've often wondered about but didn't know the answers to. I love hearing about the beginnings of any company like DME, how things started when they went from amateur to professional. The early gigs, hearing about breaking even, not really making any money, but then booking something like as big as Nightwish, uh, which obviously was a huge leap forward there. And it's nice to hear about things like the importance of loyalty and reputation and how that can get you far as well. You know, if you are solid, reliable, dependable, and that it's not all about the money all the time. It was interesting to hear Fergal's thoughts about gauging the scene. Uh, Some funny stories there about Zentrix and not being able to get their equipment out of the van. And... Also, it was just interesting to put the question to him, is there room for new wave of traditional heavy metal bands in Ireland? It seems at the moment, maybe not. Hopefully things will change in the future. Anyway, that is going to do it for this episode of Feckin' Metal. I hope you've enjoyed it. Next week, I will be bringing you an interview I had with Ollie or Oliver Weinsheimer, who is the promoter of Keep It True and various other festivals across Germany. I have this in the can a couple of weeks, so I'm happy to announce that it will be out next week. It's the end of my series of Irish-related episodes, but I thought it was a nice transition in the type of interview I'll be having this week into the one I'll be having next week. So that was also very interesting for me. There was a lot of questions that I wanted to know the answers to about the likes of Keep It True and certain things people have mentioned to me in passing about such festivals. So that's coming up next week, and that's going to do it for this week. I've been your host, Fergal Trainer. I'll see you next time.